Well, in the past couple of weeks, we've been going through the book of Jonah, uh, kind of verse by verse. JP's done a wonderful job of showing us how Jonah points us to the greater prophet, priest, and king, Jesus. And this morning, we're going to continue to do that. Um, Also, in the last couple of weeks, we've had some big events that have happened in uh, the sports world. If you are a follower of sports, the Major League Baseball draft happened and the NBA draft happened. And I mention that because these are people, these are athletes that have spent their entire life hoping for one day to hear their name called out, to show up at this crescendo moment where they get actually paid to do what they would love to do. They've spent time honing in on their skill of hitting or throwing or dribbling or becoming the fastest or the best shooter. And when one of those guys uh, has heard their names called, I don't think any of them have ever gone, Oh no, not now. Why, God? Just kill me. I just want to die. I think they've all celebrated and they've rejoiced and they were excited. And the reason I share that is because today in the text, we're going to look at a prophet that's very similar and equivalent in, uh, in where he is in his ministry. A man that God spoke directly to, provided a message verbatim that he wanted, G, uh, that he wanted Jonah to say to a, a group of people. Provided a people group that were there to listen and to hear and to receive the message. And only through the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit the entire culture, 120,000 people hear this message that we talked about last week. And they repent and they are saved. Yet the preacher... The one that delivered this message was dissatisfied. It says that he was displeased. And so Pastor Jonah, uh, being a rarity and the opportunity to to present the gospel and hear and see a people group turn and repent, to repent from their pagan uh, idolatry and to turn to Yahweh, to turn to God and say, I will now be your people and worship you. And he is displeased by this. Now, most of us, when we hear about the story of Jonah, uh, we're limited. We've, we've got a very novice understanding. A lot of times when we're young, we hear the story of Jonah as uh, this man that got swallowed up by what's been depicted as a well. It doesn't say well, it just says big fish. If you've studied a little bit, maybe you know that in, that, in the belly of this fish, he stayed three days and he had this encounter with God there. And maybe you know that in, during that encounter, he repented and the, the big fish spit him out onto the shore. And if you've studied maybe a little bit more, you know that Jonah goes to Nineveh and he goes and he tells the, the message that God laid on his heart to the people and the people repent. And that's kind of the, the summary of Jonah. Not a lot of us have actually ever read chapter 4 because we like the ending in chapter 3. Everyone repents, everybody feels good, Jonah goes to his home and he worships God and that's what he thinks is going to happen. But instead we see here in Jonah 4, chapter 1, the reality of what was going on in Jonah's heart. And the challenge for us this morning as we listen to this, this, uh, this message is that our hearts are so similar to Jonah's. After 120,000 people are saved... The preacher becomes angry, and it says in verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. In the Hebrew language, that means that Jonah actually thought that what God had done was evil. He saw what God had done, and he judged God's 
saving these people as something that would be considered evil in his own heart. That's how it exceedingly uh, displeased means. And so we're going to spend some time talking about Jonah and his anger issues, and we're going to talk more about that. But also, I also want to think about how this applies to us. Jonah's attitude, so often we've kind of all been in that same place where we felt like we're angry. I've had people in counseling come to me and say, hey, is it okay that I feel angry towards God about blank? And maybe you, where you're sitting right now, you have something in your mind, whether maybe it was uh, the death of a loved one or some sort of abuse in your life or an addiction issue. Whatever it is, you can fill in that blank. And, and you've probably asked the question internally, is it okay for me to be angry at God? And I've had people ask me that question. And my reply usually is, well, sure, but we need to understand that our anger at a good and perfect God is sinful. And that we also need to understand that He is gracious enough to be able to handle our anger. So we even see here this morning uh, that God is going to work with Jonah in his anger, where he is. God meets Jonah exactly where he is. He sees that Jonah is displeased and he's angry and, and God just puts himself in his life and engages Jonah right in the midst of all that. Now, emotions for us, they're not a bad thing. Emotions aren't, uh, are usually a good uh, radar to kind of see if, how our hearts are towards people and towards situations. Sometimes we use it to figure out what's wrong or what's right or what we feel like is wrong or what's right. And that's why it's so incredibly important for when we have an emotion, when we have feelings, that we invite people. And we invite people into those emotions, asking them, giving us a different perspective of how we're feeling. Because sometimes our emotions aren't always Right. In Jeremiah 17, it says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, I search the heart and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruits of his deeds. God is warning us there. Don't just jump in. and Just trust whatever whatever feeling that you may have. That you do need to weigh it in on God's word first. And you need to invite people in to your emotions so that they can weigh in and speak gospel language to that. That's why we talk about being saturated with the gospel language here at CODA. Another thing about that is that God uses our emotions sometimes to show us that he is a patient and loving God. But then he'll also sometimes use our emotions to peel back the layers and show us exactly how deep our sin runs. And so we have to be willing, if we're going to be emotional, to surrender that to God and ask God through the Holy Spirit to guide us when we're feeling something, when we're feeling an emotion. Especially when it's an emotion that's against God, something that we don't always understand. And so that's where we meet Jonah in, in verse 1. That he's mad, he's angry, it says it, that he's angry. He thinks that what God has done is evil. So verse 2, and he says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Remember, three days earlier, Jonah cried out to this God for mercy and for grace in the bottom of a well or a bottom of a fish. 
He's the one that is cried out and begging, just give me a chance. And God meets him where he is even in that moment. How fast has Jonah forgotten where he just was and the mercy and the grace that was extended to him? (laughs) What if God treated Jonah like Jonah wanted God to treat Nineveh? All right? What if God would have treated Jonah like Jonah's heart was towards Nineveh? Kill them. They're a disaster. I told, I told you, I told them that they were going to, to be destroyed. Destroy them. How quick has Jonah forgotten that grace and that mercy that God extended to him? That's why I asked Jim to read Exodus 34, to remind us of those words that not Moses said about God, but what God said about God. Those words that says that he passed before him and he and God proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a good, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. 450 years later, we'll hear David pray that exact same prayer in the book of Psalms several times. And now we're here in Jonah's time. And Jonah is now praying this prayer. But Jonah's not praying it out of desperation. Jonah's not praying it as a plea of rescue. Jonah's not praying this prayer even in adoration to who God is. He's praying this prayer in a voice and in a posture of anger and mockery towards God. I knew you would do this. I knew that you would be gracious and steadfast. Jonah knew these things about God. He was a good Jewish kid. He grew up. He he knows the stories about Moses meeting God on the mountain. And David crying these things out. These are, this is a good Jewish kid that has knowledge of God. He has theology. Yet, theology without heart change can be incredibly dangerous. And so he is wrongly assigning this character, this goodness of God, to be limited only to a people group. His people group. To Israel. That Yahweh was a God only for Israel, only for that nation and for those people, and that he wouldn't be extended to anyone outside of that nation. Now, that's not the message we hear throughout the the Bible, throughout teaching. We just read in Exodus that he will be merciful to who he desires to be merciful to. So it's not a matter of God being only for one nation. It's that he will forgive and he will uh, extend grace and mercy to who God chooses to do that to. Yet, Jonah's mind is blocked to thinking that Yahweh, that God was solely for him and his people. Therefore, we see why he's so upset. His anger is in his heart is because he was being selfish. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the success of what uh, of what uh, Israel would have would be based off of where Israel's enemies would be. And the Assyrians were the enemies of the nation. And so Jonah thought, well, God, if you let them succeed, then you're putting Israel in a bad position, in a bad spot. If you destroy their enemies, then we got a better opportunity to continue to thrive and be a, 
the, the, the message that God gave Israel was to make my name great. To push people to who I am as the one and true and only God. That I'm not solely pigeonholed just to be your God, but I am the God of creation for all people to come and to worship. And so as he restates this prayer that God said about himself in this mocking prayer to God in this moment in time, he doesn't even use the fullness of what he says because he does say, God says that he will leave the guilty. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. He will judge those that are wicked, that are evil. His wrath will come and he will be poured out on those that have not followed him. We have to trust that God is a fair and good and just judge. And that he will choose to extend mercy to who he chooses to. God is not a God sitting up there swiping left, waiting to find a good person. None of us are good. He's not waiting to find a good match to be in the kingdom of God. He has already written your names in the Lamb's book of life. He knows and he's chosen and he's pulled people into himself through his grace and through his mercy. And for us to sit there and for Jonah to sit there and say, no, not those people. And be angry and displeased and even call it evil. What is the position that Jonah thinks that he is in? That's why we have to be so careful that we don't just trust our, emotion, our emotions, but we trust that God is a perfect and good judge. And so we go on and we see in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, Jonah prays. He's crying out, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah is so upset that God spared the Assyrians' lives that he wants God to take his life. He would rather die than to see them be saved. Instead of turning towards God, we see Jonah do what's so familiar. He's running the other direction again. He's running away from what God desires. And if we're honest with our own hearts this morning, that's part of our problem, our sin issue. Is that God calls us to do one thing, and so often we're like, eh, don't really feel comfortable doing that. Or, or, I'm not ready to do that. Even though God said, I want you to go do this, you're making the judgment that I'm not ready to do that. Or God says, I need you, I have a message for those people, you need to go share. Like, I put that in person in your neighborhood, on your ball team. There are people of peace, they're asking questions, share. And you're like, I don't feel comfortable. I'm too busy doing whatever I'm doing. And what we see here is that Jonah thinks that the death of one himself is going to fix the problem selfishly or the death of an entire nation and of the, the Assyrians. That would be the problem solver. And that's a deep, deep sin issue in Jonah's heart and then also in our own hearts. It was the death of one man, Jesus, that came, and he's the one that, that freed us from this type of thinking. The death of one man came and rescued us from what one man made the huge mistake in the first Adam. He came and restored and redeemed and reconciled us back to himself because he's a good father. And so what we see here in Jonah is his true 
idol. We saw it in chapter 1, right? When he introduces himself to the mariners on the ship. I'm a Jew and I fear God. Well, he was a Jew first. We see that this, this text has been used over and over again to expose the steep nationalism that Jonah has. And it also exposes the same nationalism that we have. That sometimes we're Americans before we're followers of Jesus. And being able to understand how those two go together for the glory of God is where the tension lives. And that's why when we were walking in those ways and having those conversations that the gospel tension has to stay, has to remain there. You have to be saturated by the gospel language. And so then we see in, in verse 4, Jonah, verse 3, Jonah wants to die. He doesn't like God's decision. He would rather die than to see them saved. And then we hear, in the midst of Jonah's fury, God respond to him. And we hear this beautiful voice, this question that says, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? I love that throughout the Bible, when there's rebellious hearts, God so often asks a simple question. And he asks that question not to make us feel bad. I think he asks the question to expose the sin that's inside of our reaction. We see uh, almost the exact same question that's being asked to Cain as he's debating and he's angry at Abel. Right? It says that uh, God says to to Cain, why are you angry? If you remain angry, sin is crouching at the door and it will rule you. His desires, they're contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In the next scene, we see Cain calling his brother out into the wilderness. And the sin ruled over him, and he murders his brother. Like I said, God's not asking us to make us feel bad, but he's forcing us to see our own hearts. He's being a good and caring father. One that would sit his son down and say, well, Why do you feel that way? Why are you angry right now? Because he wants us to know our own hearts and to see how wicked and deceptive our hearts can be in the midst of our emotions. When I hear God ask Jonah this question, it reminds me of the prodigal son. The story we find uh, in the Gospels where the younger brother asks for his inheritance and he runs off and he spends it all. And doesn't have any contact with his dad or his brother back home. And his dad would wait at night for his son to return. And one day he sees in the, the, the distance his son coming home. And he runs to his son. And he kisses him. And he puts a ring on his finger. And a robe on his shoulder. And he calls back and says, cook the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. My son has returned. He's alive. And then the older brother comes moping into the scene. And he sees that his his brother's return and all these things are happening to him. (laughs) And he goes outside to, to sulk and be angry and be displeased. And his father comes up and sits beside him. And the father asks, the father who is merciful and gracious 
and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love looks at his his oldest son says, do you do well to be angry? Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. Jonah, I was going to pour my wrath out on those people. They were as good as dead, but they repented and they returned to me. Shouldn't that be joyful? Can you not rejoice and celebrate that 120,000 people have repented and now they believe? (laughs) Jonah being the sulking older brother, right? Jonah is forgetting that the very thing that he's taking for granted, he's taking for granted all these things that the Assyrians have now taken for granted with great joy. God is being so patient and loving and merciful to Jonah in this story just by simply asking that question. Do you do well to be angry? Now, I can't, uh, I don't know all of Jonah's heart and motivations behind that, but as I read and I've read this story, the self-reflection has been hurtful to me. It's been a hard pill to swallow. Because if I'm honest, I look in this text and I see it as a mirror to my own heart. Challenged even this week, in the last two weeks, with some of the things that God has showed me about me. And maybe you can relate to some of these. I'm a proud Christian. And there are times I don't want to share my God with those people. Because... I want to keep the church safe. And I want to avoid messy situations. I want to use my Christianity to rule over people. I think that's what Jonah is struggling with. That he's trying to protect his religion. And he's forgetting that it's for all people. That God is calling all people to himself. He doesn't want it to get messy. He doesn't want Israel to be a step behind. What we don't understand because of our positions is that we think that we have it right. And we're not willing to extend what was right that was given to us. Or maybe it's. My my huge self-pride, right? God gave Jonah a message to go to Nineveh and say, God's going to destroy you. And then what does God do? He saves them. Eggs on Jonah's face now. Man, I said that you're going to die. And so that self-pride that, man, I had a message and this is what God told me. And now it's gone the the totally different direction. Being more concerned about what others think about me than what I believe and trust that God is doing. Or maybe this, I'm not comfortable. I'm not comfortable with what you're doing, God. As if God needed my help. 
As if God didn't have a perfect and great and wonderful strategy to do what his will and his desires would be for his people. What if we're a people group who desire for God's grace to have the last word, not our feelings, not our emotions? What if God is trying to teach you something here this morning that's simply just not comfortable for you? That means that you're going to have to step away from what you know and what is comfortable. And he's calling you into something deeper because it lines up with God's word. And he's put people in your life that's, that's tested you, that's challenging you, that's pulling you outside of that comfort zone for his glory. Not for the sake of being just uncomfortable, but because God's word should be the authority over our lives. And when we read the gospel, it should offend us. Because it exposes the depths of our own sin inside of it. When we're so bound up in the way of our emotions, then we forget gospel language so often. We forget to ask ourselves this question, what am I not believing about God? We are plagued with this unbelief in our world, in the church, in your own heart. And we're always looking for some sort of satisfaction somewhere else. Well, listen, you will not find the satisfaction anywhere else other than at the cross in Jesus Christ alone. He is the one that satisfies, satisfies all of our needs. And so when we see God transform lives, we can rejoice and celebrate, not be displeased and angry. That God would start removing the things that are obstacles in front of us being able to be useful for the kingdom of God. And he would start pushing us into our neighborhoods, into our families, into those that are lost that God has placed right in front of you to share the good news. And God does that work through us. He doesn't need us. But he chooses to allow us to be the mouthpiece of his good news. And so at your school or at your workplace or at the drive-thru you go through one too many times a day and you know the person by name, that's fine. Share the good news with them. That's the call that we have on our lives. If we're to find our hope in the gospel, we can stop feeling like we have to be in control. We can stop feeling like we have to be concerned about gaining favor from other people. Or the status in society. Or finding our hope in the world and worldly satisfaction. If you make those things the main thing, then we're not trusting God is always great, glorious, gracious, and good. Jesus shows up to expose to us the heart of the Father. He shows up to show us the heart of the good Father. Desiring the things His Father desires. Accepting everyone right where they are. Meeting them in their darkness. We see God doing that with Jonah. And we see Jesus showing up in the Gospels. And he's meeting people right where they are. He's not waiting for you to be better. He's not waiting for you to be good enough. He's not swiping left or right to find a good fit. None of us are a good fit. And it's because of God's grace that He has changed us and He is transforming us and He is sanctifying us for His glory. So we have to ask ourselves, 
And when we feel those, that anxiousness, that tension, the fear, the anxiety, the doubt, the, gain, the shame, the guilt. What am I not trusting about God? I want you to ask yourself these questions with me this morning. Can we trust that God is great? Yes. Because that means we don't have to be in control. He's always in control. Can we trust that God is glorious? Yes. Because that means we don't have to fear others. Our identity is found in Christ alone. Can we trust that God is gracious? Yes. Because that means we don't have to prove ourselves. He loves you because He chose to love you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He chose to love you. Can we trust that God is good? Yes. Yes, because that means that we don't have to look anywhere else to be satisfied. That's the gospel language that we as a body, as a church, not just Coda, but as followers of Christ, we need to be reminded of every single day. God is relentless and he's gracious to Jonah and he's relentless and he's gracious to you right now and to me. And I'm so thankful for that. And the promise through the covenant that he gave us, that he would provide a perfect prophet, priest, and king in Jesus who has come to rescue us from our sinfulness. And so in Exodus 34, I just want you to hear those words one more time. God says, I am a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. As we prepare for uh, coming to the Lord's Supper in our time of worship through giving, we're going to sing a song that I asked Duck and Ben to, to play for the first time. It's called Good, Good Father. And it's just a song that I want you just to think about and let it be a proclamation an adoration of who God is, because He is always good. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for Your Word. God, how it does free us. It frees us from being caught up in the ways like Jonah. God, that we don't have to trust our emotions, but we can trust something so much greater. We can trust You. I mean, that we can trust that you give us feelings and emotions to show us where we're right and where we're, we're uh, celebrating and we're worshiping you, but then also where we're wrong and where there's sin. God, and where there needs to be correction. And Lord, wherever we are today as a, as a church, as hearers of the good news of Jesus, Lord, I pray we'd be people that would surrender. That we'd be people that desire the things that you desire for the people that you desire. No matter of color, of religion, of indifference. God, we trust, we proclaim out loud in our hearts, we trust you, Jesus. That you'll be merciful to who you choose to be merciful to. And that is the good news. And so thank you for being a good father, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.